Wednesday evening study. How I long for it and love it. Opening the Bible in the middle of the week there, where you get to come in and just lay all those things aside and just totally just press into Jesus and just, right, just get set free, man. I love it. I love it, man. Please open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 22. We've come as far as uh, verse 22 there. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of the ushers, elders, or pastors will bring you a Bible. As one of you guys are turning there, just a sort of a note. Uh, you heard, Behold, Israel's coming. Pastor Mike's going to be coming out, and I've asked him to come out and share. Um, he spent a good bit of time in Israel with Amir. He's actually Amir's brother-in-law. A lot of people don't know the relations. You know, they're like, Pastor Mike, I don't. So he's Amir's brother-in-law. So Amir's wife, uh, that's his brother. And um, he, he was actually a pastor of a church for many, many years, uh, this side. And he was also in Israel for many, many years. And so he's back this way, and I asked him to come in and give us a prophecy update. I like to do that every so often, every quarter or four or five months, I like to do that. And so he's coming in to share, and then I asked also if he would do sort of a Q&A afterwards. So it's an opportunity for us to get an update on what's going on in, in Israel, and, and we kind of do that, right? We go through the Word of God, and then I also sometimes will use application to describe the current events. But it's really nice when we get to have a brother come in and share. I don't know when he was just in Israel, he's just in another state, and he's hearing things, and it's just a really good opportunity for us to come in and look at end times prophecy in light of the days we're living and just how close we are to Jesus coming. I mean, we are in the last, last days. And and so just to turn around and study those things and, and look at those things, amen, is right. And so uh, we then have a Q&A because I thought it would be awesome for you guys maybe have some questions or things that are going on or maybe different things out of Scripture that you always wanted to ask. And, you know, take time to go through that. So I, thought, I hope it's a blessing, but um, you need to sign up. Uh, we already have like 56 people signed up. We can only fit about 170 in this sanctuary here and another couple, 50, 25, something like that on the other side. So as you can imagine, because it's also on the website, people are calling in from other, you know, that know of um, you know, Amir and, and or Pastor Mike. And so they're calling, calling up and saying, we want to register. And I really just want our flock to get registered first. Like, I want you guys to have the priority to this. And then certainly we want to have other brothers and sisters in Christ come. But I, I want you guys to be able to have that first priority. So please, after service, if it's on your heart, we've made it free. We just want this to be a blessing. Go over and sign up. You just write your name on the list. As long as we know, then we can allocate the seating and make sure we don't get over, overextended, so to speak. All right, well, let's, uh, let's, let's get into the Word of God. Um, you know, we're going to be going into this beautiful passage tonight on uh, the dedication of the actual temple by Solomon. He has spent the better part of seven years uh, as called on by the Lord building the house of God. He then went through and uh, the Ark of the Covenant was then brought into the Holy of Holies, Obviously, we looked at that, and we know Aaron's rod is missing. We, we, we don't know where it is. We no one up to this point. I wonder if someday, you know how God does that, those touch points where, you know, archaeologists go through, and they dig, and they find something. I'm wondering one day if they'll find, before, just before maybe Jesus comes uh, to take us to rapture us out, if somebody will find, you know, the Aaron's rod that's budded, and, you know, oh, my gosh, is Aaron's rod. This is great. Or, you know, just that last bit of, it's undeniable, the Word of God, undeniable. Just that last bit of evidence that's kind of the, 
sort of, it's settled. This is beyond contestation moment. And maybe, who knows, next to it will be like a little jar of manna. What is this, right? You know, maybe they'll even write it in the Hebrew. What is this on the side of it, you know? Um, I don't know, but I think that would be cool, right? Right before we got to go up, you could see the news media covering that one. Aaron's rod, you know, or, you know, the man is found. You know, we'd all be like, yeah, we told you. <laughs> We've been telling you for years. All right, well, so at this point, as we go into verse 22, we're going to look at one of the most memorial or sort of memorable points. Uh, this is going to be the greatest point of Solomon's life here in verse 22 and on. And really, you might say, even in Israel from this time forward, we're going to be reading about just wealth and uh, God's favor that's being poured out on this nation in a way that just, it, it's at Jesus Christ himself when he came to earth in Matthew 6 and other passages, referred back to Solomon in all the glory, and he was saying that even in all of that splendor, there's one greater right? And then also, obviously, the lilies of the field and, you know, neither toil nor spin. We're going to look at that tonight. But just the beauty of what God is saying, even in, I want you just to take that to heart as we're reading this, and you think about the magnificence, the, the money, the, the, all the things that went in, the gold, all this stuff, and yet to Christ, that was like nothing. That was nothing, because our God is a big God. And it's just nothing. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your holy word. And we thank you, Lord, that the best is yet to come, Jesus. Uh, we can't wait, Lord, to be reconciled. Uh, when I say that, I mean physically to you, Lord, in heaven with you, raptured out of this earth. But God, until that point, we know, Lord, there is work to be done in this city. And we pray, God, for those uh, divine appointments for eyes to see and ears to hear. And certainly, Lord, that we would... Um, Dedicate the living temple, which is our hearts and our bodies, all of that to you here this evening. Because, Lord, you dwell in us uh, and not in a building made with hands. That way it's our hearts. And so thank you, Jesus Christ, for coming and your presence being in the midst of us here. And now we want to and desire to hear what your spirit has to say. So, Lord, we pray all these things in your holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll begin in verse 22 here. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. I mean, just picture this. Some 200, or sorry, 2 million people gathered. Solomon stands out, his hands pointed unto the Lord in just acknowledgement of what God has done. What God has done and not what man has done. And he said, Lord God of Israel... There is no God in heaven above or on the earth below like you who keeps your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Our God is a promise keeper. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way, that they may walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple 
which I've built. If only Solomon would have kept this humility about him. If only he would have stayed in this kind of a relationship with Jesus, with the Lord. He wouldn't have wandered. He understood at this point that this this building, and I think of even the building that we're in the process of building, you know, as the Lord goes before us, it can't possibly even begin to contain the presence of the Lord. And for Solomon to so rightfully declare this, yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened towards this temple night and day, toward the place which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. And that's really one of the points of the building or the temple that way, the church today as we understand it. And as I mentioned on Sunday, right, when we were talking about that passage in 1 Timothy in regards to the offices of women and the offices of men that way, and the whole point of when Paul was talking about not, you know, having women wear this sort of ornate jewelry that draws all their attention to them, or men not lifting holy hands or, you know, just going through the motions. The point of all of that was that nothing should ever be a distraction from the Lord, from Jesus himself. And that's why we come here. We come here to sit under his word, to be under God's authority, and to meet with him in this place. It never grows old, does it? It never, it never grows tiring. It never, it never gets, dare I say the word, casual. You know, of course it's casual because in some ways we, but it's, we are meeting with the Lord and he promises to meet with us every time we open his word and we read. He does something very, very supernatural in our hearts. And you may hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now, in this next section, all the way verses 31 through, really, uh, verse 46, 47 that way, we're going to go through seven specific petitions that Solomon is going to be making unto the Lord that way. And it's specifically called out there. And I'll, I'll call out each one. It's a series of seven here, collectively, if you're writing in the margins. The first one begins in verse 31. When... So there's the first declarative point. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and come and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. You don't need an eyewitness before God. God is the eyewitness, right? The idea here is that when someone sins against his neighbor, he's forced to take an oath. He comes and takes an oath before the altar that way, right, to make sure everything's done in righteousness. He's saying, God, you hear, you see, you recognize all that's happening. God, you're the head, right? And you, you judge righteously. I think this is, again, a beautiful point in Solomon's life where he realizes he can't possibly, with all his wisdom that God has given him, 
he can't possibly judge and see as God sees. So he's saying, God, you see righteousness. You know when someone's going through the motions. You know when someone's faking something. You know when this is all going on. God, you, you see these things. The second one begins in verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy. Isn't that interesting that he would say that? Almost prophetic in nature in how he writes this. But he says, why? Because they have sinned against you. We know that's declarative of the Syrian invasion. We know that's declarative of the Babylonian captivity and invasion. But Solomon didn't know that. But he had enough wherewithal through the Holy Spirit to be echoing these things unto God. He says, look, when your people Israel are defeated before enemy, because they have sinned against you. And when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in in this temple, what is he saying? He's saying, hear their cries, Lord. Hear their cries for repentance. Verse 34, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? When your nation will cry out and ask for forgiveness and repent, Lord, Heal that nation. Come back and restore that nation. Restore the relationship you have with your people. Forgive their sin. What it would be if the United States of America collectively today would humble themselves and pray this very prayer. Because we are a nation that has gone so far away from God Almighty. So far away from his commandments, statutes, and judgments. A nation of sin. We become a nation of sin. But it's not too late. It's never too late. Because our God redeems. Amen? Our God redeems. The third one in verse 35 here, the third specific petition that Solomon makes. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, you clearly understand he's talking about famine in those times. Because they have sinned against you. Notice these are all so far tying to sin. When we sin against you, when we've done this, when sin is perpetrated, when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin. Did you see that? When they confess your name, when they recognize and acknowledge you are God Almighty. There is no other. When they, when they, it begins there. Who is Jesus? When they confess your name and they turn from their sin, metanoia in the Greek, the idea there is repentance. And they turn from their sin because what? Why? Because you afflict them. Yeah. Much of the affliction that we see, much of it is due to the sin in our lives. Not always and not all of it, but much affliction is. Why would God allow affliction or be the author of it in some cases? What is the whole point? His desire is to correct, right? And when he corrects, what does he do? He draws back in as a good father, putting his arm around his child, restoring, redeeming, Covering, washing, cleansing, healing. That's what he does. He's a good dad, isn't he? Abba Father, he's a good father. 
He says, then here in heaven, and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. He says, God, when there's a turning and a, and a repentance there and there's a, a getting right, and, and Lord, even if it means because you had to bring correction, Lord, because you're so good and you're a righteous judge, you will not compromise with sin. Lord, then and after and always after, Lord, please restore and pour forth your blessing. Let your water come forth, living water, your rain, Lord. Bring back the fruit and the increase of the land. But it has to be in that order. You can't ask God to bless the sin. Is everybody there with me this evening? I, I know this isn't popular. I know today that people are living in sin and they want God to bless them in that sin. God cannot do that because that's against his very nature. He would be rewarding the very sin that he condemns. He, he can't do that. He's a righteous judge, and he's not a respecter of persons. And I'm so grateful for that because he's long-suffering, and he's so tender-hearted and merciful that when we do repent, he will restore and right everything before us. And he will bless us, and the rain will come, and the increase will follow it too. The fourth one, verse 37 the fourth petition, when there is a famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besieges them in the land of, of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, that should have our attention. Whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart, you see what Solomon just did there? He took the natural disaster that might be going on around them or the plague or famine, and then he says it begins where? It begins in our hearts individually. That plague happens before we ever see it happen around us. The famine, the famine in our hearts, it's where it starts. The famine starts there. And then, oh, by the way, we see the lack of food and produce and things in the land the lack of rain or water, as we have just read. But first it begins in the heart of man because of his rejection, because of sin, far before it ever gets to the point of where we see it in the land around us. You know, I, I, I take to heart what Paul said about examining our own hearts. In the, in the New Testament, he says, if we would just examine our own hearts, God himself wouldn't have to examine us. That's a good word. Whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards the temple, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act. Now he says, and move, Lord. Will you move? Will you act upon this? And give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart, there he goes again, underline that, you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. God knows. He knows our hearts. There's no hiding anything from the Lord. He, know, he knows the, the beginning from the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That they may fear you, reverence, reverential fear, not fear because of 
you know, oh my, I'm afraid. But a reverential fear is of not wanting to disappoint your Father in heaven. Which you gave to all your fathers, right? This land, right? That they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to their fathers. Verse 41, number 5. Moreover, concerning a foreigner, that, that would be a Gentile who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your namesake. He says, when they come, because they hear your word or they hear about you, Jesus, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. He says, you can't hide God. You can't keep him bottled up. You can't keep the light and the joy and the beauty of Christ in you is you can't hide it. They're going to hear, you know. They're going to know that God is in this place. You know, you don't need a marketing campaign. You don't need a church growth plan. You need people that love Jesus. And sheep that are healthy naturally multiply. That's what happens. Here in heaven, your dwelling place. And do according to all for which the foreigner calls. I think this is beautiful, not just for Israel, but for the Gentile, for those that will come to Christ, to you and all the people of the earth, that you may know your that they may know your name and fear you, and do as you do your people, Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Isn't that beautiful? That the Gentiles may know you and that they may receive salvation. That's the, this is the fifth thing he prays there, this petition he makes unto the Lord. I just want you to think about some of the things that we've already gone through. We're only up to number five. How often do we pray and ask God to hear the prayers of our hearts that line up with similar petitions, praying for the lost that don't know Jesus, right? Praying for the famine, the pestilence, the things that are happening to people all around the world, Terrible uh, tsunamis and tornadoes and storms and things that are going on affecting brothers and sisters in Christ, but also unbelievers. How about the, the pestilence, right? The, the viruses and the disease. I mean, you know, we hear all this stuff in the news about, you know, the strains and all these other things of different viruses and all that. You know what? God's in control of all of it. Let's just, let's just cut right to the point. God can immediately stop everything, if he so chose, in the moment of a breath. There's nothing too big or too difficult for God. He never expected us to live in fear of these things. That's not his plan. We make him known. Because when the world sees all of these things happening and operating in the physical realm around them, then just maybe, just maybe for a moment... They'll entertain the thing that's missing in their very hearts. That emptiness that so Christ longs to fill. Because after all, as he said, it's the heart. Well, let's look at verse 44, which is number six. When your people go out to battle against the enemy, wait a minute, you mean that there's war and God anoints that sometimes to fight the battles, to defend those and freedoms, and the way of life, yeah. Verse 44 describes that right here. When your people go out to battle, because they will, against the enemy, wherever you send them, and, wh and 
when they pray to the Lord towards the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplications and maintain their cause. Are we praying for our military? Men and women, servicemen and women that every day wake up to go in harm's way to protect you and I, our children, and our freedoms in this country? That's a good reminder. And finally, verse 46, number 7, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy. So wait a minute, you mean sometimes the Lord gives us over to that affliction, to that persecution? Yes. Yes, that's what we read. That we can be buffeted, right? We can be humbled, and we can return with the right heart. And they take them captive to a land of the enemy far or near. Can you imagine Solomon thinking, you know, saying these words of being recorded for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as the prophets Isaiah, you know, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel would go back and read these words declared in some 900, you know, whatever BC or even, you know, right around that time in 700, just a couple hundred years, a few hundred years from this very point when that first evasion would happen by the Assyrians, that God would go and allow exactly what happened here. Number seven, he says, when they bring you captive and because of your sin and you deliver them into the enemy. Can you imagine as they read this, Lord, this is what happened this is what's happening to us. Isn't that what Jeremiah went back as a prophet and kept trying to remind them, look at what's happening. He would go to the king. He would say, look at these things. And what were the prophets in the land, the false prophets in the land, might I add, what were they saying? Oh, no, 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 no. Nebuchadnezzar's not going to come in here and do these things. No, no, this isn't going to happen that way. And, and God says, you go tell those false prophets that are turning around and spreading lies, saying everything is good, man. You know, it's gonna, everything's going to be all right. Everything's good. It's not good. It's not good when God's people are sinning. It's not good when the world is sinning. Things are not right in their order. And we should never be uh, comfortable within our sin. We should never be comfortable when there's distance and animosity because God is upset because we have forsaken his commandments, statutes, and, statutes and judgments. He's a God of obedience. He's a God of obedience. That doesn't ever change. Read your Bible. I read my Bible. He's a God that desires obedience over everything else. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. And for who loves the Lord, you what? You obey Jesus, his commandments, statutes, and judgments. That's one of the actual measuring grounds that God uses, that you know who loves him, that he knows. Not to say that we don't blow it, we do. But that's not the aim, right? That's not the aim. Yet, in verse 47, when they come to themselves in the land and they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land. And those who took them captive saying, we have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. And when they returned to you with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and prayed to you toward the land, which you gave to their fathers, the city, which you have chosen and the temple, Jerusalem. 
which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayers and their supplications and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which you have trans which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before you who took them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt out of the iron furnace. He's saying, Lord, hear the prayers of these people while they're in captivity. Dare I say today in the 21st century, even those that are in the captivity of their own mind because of the wickedness and the things that are going on, Lord, set the captives free. Because that's what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to set the captives free. There's not a single person on earth today that needs to be enslaved in sin. Not a single person. There's not a single person that needs to be condemned today. Because we have the blood of Jesus Christ that has washed us and cleansed us and renewed us. We are a new creation and all things are made new. No matter what happened yesterday and the days prior, all things are made new. God is not grammatically challenged. Every one of us can walk out of this sanctuary here tonight with our heads held high in thanksgiving, with our hands lifted high in praise and worship because we serve the one true God who has justified us, who's forgiven us, and who has set us in right relationship with our Father. No one else and nothing else could do that. And no one else can take that away from us. We ought to be celebrating in spite of our circumstances. We ought to be celebrating. There ought to be a joy that just exudes out of the Christian, regardless of what's going on, the physical trauma, the tragedies, the things that are going on. Where is the joy? Our worship should be filled with joy. Pastor, you, the world is evil. Isaiah 5. I know. But I'm not of the world. My citizenship is heavenly and so is yours. You're not a victim and you're not beaten down. You have a God that loves you. He's filled you with his Holy Spirit. He's equipped you and gifted you for every good work and purpose. You walk out of here with a anointed heart and an anointed plan ordained by God to serve him with an exuberance and a joy that when the kids get home and they see mom and dad dancing around, I love Jesus. Oh, they've lost it now. You know, that's all right. Come on over, jump around with us because we love Jesus. You know, come on, worship. We don't have to be, you know, sourpusses, right? There's the Christians. <laughs> Doom and gloom. No. Forgive us, Father. For you have separated from... Well, let me back up, excuse me. For the, but I'm just going to go back to verse 50. And forgive your people, for you have sinned against you, and all the transgressions which they transgressed against you, and grant them the compassion before those who took 
them captive, that they may have compassion on them, that, that speaks to our hearts and how we see others as well as our own predicaments. For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you've brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to supplication on your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance. And that hasn't changed either for Israel, has it? That hasn't changed. As you spoke by your servant Moses, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord, our God. Isn't that what Daniel prayed? Remember Daniel in the upper room when he was praying for two weeks? And he was just, he was praying for his nation. He was praying for the land, for the people, right? Syrian, Babylon, you know, all that's going on. Are we praying today for these nations? Are we praying for Israel? Genesis 12, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. Church didn't replace Israel. There's no replacement theology in your Bibles. Israel's alive and well. They're going to get saved, those that have not come to Christ. We read it in Jeremiah 31, 31. They will receive the new covenant, the covenant that you and I are already a partaker of today. That's what lies before them. It's going to happen, I assure you. Every word of God is true. Uh, let man be a liar, as Scripture says. Well, let's go on to verse 54. Now, in this part of the passage, really, all the way to verse 61, Solomon, at this point, is going to sort of decree a blessing upon the people that are all gathered. Remember, the whole church of uh, the temple there, the two million plus of Israel, they're all gathered right there. Can you imagine what that's got to be like as everybody's gathered? The, this is awesome. The temple's there. The presence of the Lord is there. The Shekinah glory filled the temple. Man, peaced out. Talk about peaced out. Peaced out. Just awesome watching all this happen. The smoke of the temple rising. Not, nobody's thinking about anything else other than I love Jesus. Jesus. You know, it is awesome. And so Solomon looks up, Lord puts it on his heart, and he begins to bless the people. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying, he dedicated the temple, all this prayer and the supplication to the Lord, that he arose before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees. Did you catch that? With his hands spread up to heaven, right? Lifting up his prayer for the people. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us, and he, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. What did he bless the people? What did he lift his voice? He says it in a loud voice, right? The Lord God be with us. What is he blessing them with? He's talking about relationship. Everything's focused on the koinia, the relationship. Blessed be God our Father. Blessed be our Lord. It's all in regards to the blessing of the relationship between the nation of Israel and the one true God. And friends, again, thousands of years later, guess what? That hasn't changed. As we're gathered here as a church, blessed be our Lord, our God, our Father, right? And I could read the same thing to you here, and we all are partakers of that same blessing. I just think that's so cool that God loves us so much. And may these words of mine 
with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servants and the cause of his people Israel. He's going to go before his people, and each day he may require, God's going to provide what all they need, blessings, favor, everything God goes before them. Isn't this beautiful Solomon's heart? Please understand, we're going to see right in chapter 9, right about now, he's somewhere about 20 years into a 40-year reign, okay? So about halfway this 20 years, they have been just absolutely amazing for Solomon. He's walked according to the Lord. He's followed his commandments and statutes. He's put God first. He's done all the things that are called out from the kings, Deuteronomy 18, although he did trust in a little bit of the chariots and horses, but everything, he, down in Deuteronomy 17, I'd say, he has done all of these things. It's unfortunate that he didn't read what God had actually spoken through him. Because had he gone back and read the very things, dare I say the next 20 wouldn't have been like, you know, the worst downward spiral in Solomon's life. Because the way he finishes is nowhere near where he started. It's never how you start the race. It's always how you finish the race that God has put before you. And may these words of mine, again, verse 59, with which I have made supplication before, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servants and the cause of his people, as each day may require, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. That's the whole point, isn't it? Not drawing men to him. He, at this point, Solomon's not drawing people to himself yet. He will, but not yet. Right now, he's still drawing them to God. Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as this day. How many times? We just read that two times just within this one. Commandments, statutes, and judgments, or at least commandments and statutes. Following God in obedience. Because even Solomon understood this wonderful grand building is wonderful. It's blessing, but it's nothing compared to the relationship with God. It's nothing compared to having the right relationship with God and not turning around and, and, and so not meeting with him in this place, right? What makes this church and this building and everything that we're in is so special. I mean, we come in, it's climate controlled. We get to sit in cool air tonight as it's 90-something, 5 degrees out today with storms and hail, as I heard on the East Shore, you know, all the things going on today. And here we can come in here and we can meet with God without distraction. That's how much he loves us. He's gone before us that we can, we can really enjoy spending time with our Lord. We can enjoy it. Well, he's going to finish dedicating the, 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 the temple and the rest of the passages here uh, all the way down to verse 66 from 62. He's going to finish the dedication. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered sacrifices of peace offerings. Did you catch that? That's awesome. Underline that. It wasn't a burn offering for sin. It was a peace offering. Do you know why that's important? Because a peace offering, as we learned already and read in Scripture, is an offering that the people get to partake of it, so do the, so do the Levites and or the priests. So the people that are bringing part of the offering, you know what that speaks to again? What did he just 
as he was pronouncing that blessing, what was that blessing upon? Again, it was establishing the blessing upon the relationship. So here he goes, and now he's making this offering, the king and the people. And what offering do they make? The offering that's known for relationship, the peace offering. You just you can't make this up. How wonderful this is that this offering goes forward where people come forward, and now they get to be partakers because they get to enjoy some of this sacrifice unto the Lord. And vice versa. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You can't miss the, the way that God did this, which he offered to the Lord 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house to the Lord. On the same day, you know what they just did? They had barbecue, man, right? That's what they did. They had barbecue because they're, it's a peace offering. So they're all partaking. You know, we're going to have our baptism picnic coming up, right? I love that. I love to watch folks that have never been baptized, never honored that command as we see in scripture, right? They, they maybe didn't know or just whatever reason, and they come forward and they get baptized. They want to make a public profession, you know, of an inward transformation of what God has done in their hearts. And then afterwards, one of the things I've always loved in Calvary Chapel is we break bread together. We're outside, you know, the weather. We have worship and we, we have songs. We're singing unto the Lord. People bring, you know, meat you got to have meat. You know, I understand if you're a vegetarian, go ahead, bring your squash. We'll put it on the grill. You'll feel real good about it. But we're having meat, man. You bring that thing, the pastors fire up the grill. You bring a hunk of like some brontosaurus rex and throw that thing up there. You know, meat's on the barbie tonight, you know, and you just sit there and we have fun and fellowship. And it's a blessed time, isn't it? It's a blessed time. They're sacrificing under the Lord barbecue, man. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. There he offered burnt offerings. Isn't that interesting? Different. Grain offerings. And the fat of the peace offerings, which was always the choicest part that was to go to the Lord. Because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. Okay? At that time, Solomon held a feast in all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days, 14 days of a worship barbecue. I think we ought to figure out how to do that, pastors. <laughs> right? Flock, you in? 14 days? Just keep loading it up, man. Potato salad and barbecue. Worshiping Jesus. That's what we need. I'll tell you, that'll change hearts. Not because of the barbecue, the worship I'm talking about. Some of you are like, yeah, I like me some barbecue. No, I'm talking about the worship. But barbecue's good. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart. Of course, full bellies, happy hearts. For all good, for all the good that the Lord has done for his servants David and for Israel's people. We see Thanksgiving. Never stop worshiping family. Never stop worshiping God. That, that's, that's what I take out of this passage, a dedication to the temple, God's presence being with them. They're excited. They're jubilee. You know, they, they're so excited. They're, there's jubilation. They're, they're just barbecuing. They're worshiping. And we're part of a better covenant than they were. We have Christ living in us. We don't have to go and meet him at a building while we come in to worship him here. We, he lives in our hearts. How much more every single day of our lives we should have that joy 
and the presence and the, just the greatness of how God is and the worship should just spill out, man. It's beautiful. Well, we're going to stop there for tonight. Go ahead and read uh, chapters 9 and 10 for next week. If the Lord should tarry, we're going to come back and we're going to read uh, a very sobering chapter, chapter 9, uh, but often very important. I'll leave you with this uh, this evening. Please understand when God gives you a word in Scripture, if He speaks to your heart specifically about something that's going on, and you may look at it and go, but I don't understand, Lord. It doesn't seem to pertain to my specific situation at the moment. You write that down in your notebook, in your prayer journal, and you keep that ever near and dear to your heart. Because this is the second time we're going to see Solomon have this appearance from God. It's some 20 plus years or seven, depending if you want to say it's seven or 20, depending on if you're taking the 13 or not, as the time of building the house and the house of uh, the um, hall of Lebanon, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court and all the other buildings and the palace. So if you take the 13 years, it's 20 years. Some people subscribe and say, well, no, it's just the first seven. Look, wherever you end up on that, whether it's seven or 20 years, the reality is... <coughs> God's going to meet with Solomon again. And he's going to go over and he's going to basically reinstitute or repeat the Susan Vashrel covenant. If you do this, if the people will stay and they will be obedient, remember all the things that just went on in chapter 8 and the worship, the feast, and everything, the relationships is good, you know, as, as whole as it, it should be at that point, right? There's nothing going on. There's not sin at this point. There's not sin in the camp. This is like ideal right there, right? Right at this point in scripture. Please notice with me that chapter nine comes right alongside that. That is not coincidental. God goes right to Solomon and says, you can have all of this. You can have the temple. You can have these things. You can have even our coin. But if you don't put obedience as a priority, it's going to affect our relationship. We can't miss that. That's why Jesus Christ made declarative in the Gospels, as well as the Pauline epistles, so much about obedience, obedience, obedience. I fear what is sometimes settled into some churches today is the idea that I can do whatever I want because I'm born again. Therefore, I can live the way I want to live or, you know, I understand grace and grace is wonderful. We've been given grace, but God never called us to not be obedient he never called us to not be obedient to his commandments, statutes, and judgments. We need both. It's not the fullness of love without the fullness of truth. They're hand in hand, and they must go together, and you cannot separate them. When you do, you're no longer walking in the truth of the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God or the fullness of truth because you've compromised. We, I've compromised. Whoever's done that is compromised. It's not his plan. So as he goes into chapter 9, he's going to go through and he's going, to, he's going to explain how he's going to establish, how he's going to do these things. But it's a requirement for the people to obey. Please see that with me, that God desires us today to be obedient as new covenant believers, as born-again believers in Christ. He still desires obedience from his children, you know? How we think, how we behave, how we carry ourselves, our character and our conduct matters. We don't need to get legalistic. That's not what he's talking about here. Legalism is not the same thing as obedience. Obedience is obedience to God and his word. 
In other words, obeying what he's put before you to protect you from harm's way, to protect you from the enemy. And he desires we all walk that out. And then he's going to go through and you're going to see the exchange of gifts for cities and then, you know, different things are going to happen. And then we're going to see and get introduced right into chapter 10 with the queen of Sheba, right? The queen of Yemen today as we would know it, that Sheba is Yemen as we would know it in a modern calendar or uh, modern map, excuse me, what we would know today, it would be Yemen. So we're going to see this queen of Sheba, she's going to come over and she's going to be so enamored with the wisdom. And it's so beautiful. She's a foreigner. She's from Yemen. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's going to come in and she's going to see the palace, the gar, all of the things Solomon, as it was common in that day, she's going to try to give him a puzzle because they would give riddles and things like that. And if you were able to show wisdom, and they, they, people were impressed with that, okay? That was a big deal. They would go to kings and do those kind of things. She's going to come in, and she's going to bring all this wealth and all this riches and everything, and he's going to return the favor that way, Solomon. But she's going to come away going, I have never seen anything like this in all the earth. Solomon is going to get a reputation world-renowned. And you know what she's going to say at the end? Your God She's going to, a foreigner is going to come in and recognize that it had nothing to do with Solomon himself, other than he was a willing vessel and obedient at this point. But even more impactful is that she's going to come in and see that this is supernatural, that what is happening at this time for Israel, for the kingdom, for all the people, and for everything that's going on in this nation. There is no other way to explain it on earth because they've never seen anything else like this. And they never will again until Christ Messiah comes. Jesus comes back again. Amen? So go ahead, stand with me. We're going to pray. I encourage you to read ahead. I'd like to have the worshipers come up and we're going to, the musicians come up. We're going to close with a song. We just read about how awesome worship is. I don't know. Maybe somebody's got some barbecue in the other room. All right, we'll start that 14 days now. No, no, we don't have that tonight. We'll wait till the baptism picnic. But man, I, I tell you what, it is good to be a worshiper of God. Amen? Amen? It is good to worship in spirit and truth. Will you pray with me? Father, I just thank you, Lord, with all excitement and exuberance of my heart. Lord Jesus, we love you. You are God and there is no other. Lord, just as Solomon declared, nothing has changed, Lord. We love you. Our lives are dedicated unto you and we want to worship you tonight, Lord. We want you to just receive our alms, our prayers, our supplication, our worship unto you. And we pray it would be so holy and pleasing and such a sweet aroma to you tonight, God. So we pray just receive this in full honor, Lord, that we love you. And we are so very thankful for all that you're doing in our lives. And most importantly, Jesus, for the relationship that you have established with us that no man and no situation can ever change. We are forever indebted to you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ. And all God's pray, people pray, amen.